Rock Bottom is one of the most beautiful places I've ever been. It's a place where you are presented front and center with how precious every moment of your life actually is. And that if you're not willing to go in a different direction, it can be taken from you tomorrow. There's an immediacy of it. And being pushed up against that line where you see, if I just go one more step, I don't get any more of this. That is a place that if you get there, and I hope you don't, but if you do, your life will never be the same. Welcome back to another episode of The Proof. I'm Simon Hill, your show host, and today's guest is Adam Sud. This is Adam's second time on the show, and I have to say, he didn't disappoint. Adam shares with us his journey with addiction and substance abuse, and the importance of emotional health and self-love in our pursuit of happiness and longevity. Before we get into this episode, a quick trigger warning. In this conversation, we discuss both disordered eating and suicide. So if you're sensitive to either of those topics, this might not be the best episode for you. And a reminder to please subscribe on YouTube, Apple, Spotify, or whatever platform you're tuning in from. Your support is greatly appreciated and enormously important to this show finding its way into the ears of more people. And now, my conversation with Adam Sud. One of the best ways to track our health is to regularly get blood work done, so we can take a peek under the hood and get a feel for the state of our cardiometabolic and hormonal health. You can do this with your local doctor, or you can use a service like Inside Tracker. The nice thing about Inside Tracker is they make the process super convenient. You can organize their phlebotomist, a person who draws blood, to come to your house or office to do the blood draw. A few days later, your results show up in the Inside Tracker app, and they provide lifestyle recommendations based on whether a particular test is suboptimal, normal, or optimal. I've checked Inside Tracker's lifestyle recommendations, specifically the exercise and nutrition ones, and I can confidently say they are evidence based and in line with the information shared in both my book and on this show. They even added ApoB to their ultimate plan, based on recommendation from myself and others. It's also nice to have all of your lab results readily accessible in one mobile app, making it easy to pull up past results and see trends and patterns over time. Get 20% off the entire Inside Tracker store. To get started, go to insidetracker.com forward slash Simon for this exclusive offer. That's insidetracker.com forward slash Simon. If you're a long-time listener of this show, you'll be well aware of the scientific evidence that supports a high-fiber, plant-rich diet for good long-term health. And while I certainly believe in a food-first approach, there is a role for supplements to help optimize the intake of specific nutrients and address any nutritional gaps. Enter Emil. Emil is a plant-based wellness company with a series of products to help you optimize your plant-based diet. Two of my favorite products being the Essential 8 Multivitamin and the Optimal Omega Plus. The Essential 8 contains eight key nutrients that plant-based eaters often fall short in. And the Optimal Omega Plus contains a direct source of DHA and EPA Omega-3s, same as in fish, but from algae. In fact, taking Optimal Omega Plus daily which contains 750 milligrams of EPA and DHA, is equivalent to eating two to three pieces of fatty fish per week, in line 
with the nutrition recommendations globally. To get your Essential 8 and Optimal Omega Plus, head to theproof.com forward slash friends and follow the link which will get you an extra 10% off your first order. That's theproof.com forward slash friends. Adam, yeah, hard to believe it's been almost four years or maybe just a tick over four years. Yeah, it's wild. We were just talking about that. You're saying like almost to the day. Mm. Yeah. And it, it reminds me that episode that we recorded back then where we kind of dove into your journey, your story. Uh, it was so powerful. Like the feedback that I got, honestly was off the charts well i gotta say it of, of all the conversations i've had and all the podcast episodes i've done like still to this day that's one of if not the most favorite conversation i've ever had it it just everything felt so like just flowed well we really got into it i felt like it was just such a and the response i got from when you shared it was just remarkable i yeah. think it was the vulnerability yeah. on your behalf yeah. like the messages that i got were thank you so much for that conversation adam's bravery his courage was what sort of inspired or gave people hope who perhaps were maybe not in the exact same situation but had their own sort of variational form of uh, mental health struggle yeah yeah it was um i mean I'm very proud of that conversation and that, that entire episode, the conversation that we had, um, like to this day, when people ask me to send them clip of, uh, conversations that I've had, I always send them that one because I'm just so proud of it. All right. Yeah. Speaking of, of, of proud, I was speaking with Doug Bopes, who's a mutual friend of ours and, and the shares eyes and, um, it's amazing. Everyone that, that I know who knows you speaks so fondly of you. Oh, man. That's so and, nice. And it is, it is because of your courage to share. Well, thank you. And, and people find that that sort of gives them an invita inv invitation to then think about their own mental health and talk about it. And that can be uncomfortable. So I think you help kind of tear down or push away a little bit of a barrier. Uh, I mean, I, you know... Like that mean that means the world to me because I uh people like Dean and Aisha Shurzai, people like Doug Bopes, people like yourself, um, are in my opinion, those are those are authentic humans. And I'm not saying other people aren't, but in my life, those are people that are genuinely willing to go to places that might make people uncomfortable, but is for the betterment of what we can honestly talk about. What is authenticity, being authentic? I think you mentioned previously to me yeah. that it will, for you, when you were going through your struggles, it wasn't about becoming a new person. Yeah. It was about living and being and showing up as your authentic self, who, who you already were. Yeah, you know, so when I, when I think about it, recovery for me, wasn't about figuring out how to not use anymore. Um, and I think that that's a common misconception when we talk about addiction is, you know, how do, we, how do we help someone not use? But I think that for me, and what I think is valuable for most people, is to return to like an authentic way of being is to figure out how you can show up in your life and design a life where use is less necessary. 
rather than how do I figure out how to never use for the rest of my life? How do I figure out how to design, be, I would say, like be the architect of a way of, of living your life, organizing your environment, organizing your social circle, organizing your purpose, so that life feels like such an exciting place to show up and be present, even when things are difficult, that use is no longer necessary. And I think that's what authenticity, in my opinion, that's what it is. It's about if your life feels like such a safe, secure, and hopeful place to be, you're willing to show when things are difficult. You're willing to ask someone and say, oh man, I do not have this today. Right, and you don't have to hide. You don't have to hide it. You don't have to hide, you don't have to numb, you don't have to insult. You can authentically be present in your life as it is, because even when it's hard, it still feels safe and hopeful. Did you find that was a big weight off your shoulders, not having to hide things? You know, it's a, it's a practice I still do um, every single day is, is making sure that I'm, I'm as authentically as possible showing up, but oh my gosh, you know, because my life has evolved since when we first talked. Um, but you know, so much of the mental health struggle is, I think, um, Robin Williams said it, he said, people don't fake being depressed. They fake being well, um, that you have to create this persona that even though it's obvious you're struggling, you still, you've got it under control. You know, what's going on, even though you don't. You, you or I, for, for, for the sake of the story, oh my gosh, every day was terrifying. Nothing about my life felt safe or secure. Um, being present was a very difficult thing to do. And so I was hiding from that all the time. Understanding that you can put on that mask is a really strong reminder of the importance of checking in on people. Because there could be people, like I've had two people in my life who have uh, unfortunately committed suicide. Yeah. Um, something that we may speak about further in this episode. But it's a reminder that you can think things are going well yeah. for people around you. And they might be the closest people in your life, but they can be hiding behind a mask. Oh, you know, never underestimate someone's ability to pretend as if things are okay. And if, you, if you're human, then you have to recognize that you as a human show up and you only show a certain percentage of yourself to people. And so the people that you love are doing the same exact thing. And that there's very, probably very few people in your life that you know, you know what they're going through on a daily basis completely. And so as an act of caring, one of the best things you can do is, and I say this all the time to people, is if you know someone and they're struggling, just call them and say, I love you. Uh, I, and I love you whether you're using or you're not. And if you ever have anything that you need to say, I may not have answers, but I want to listen. And if you need me to just be with you, I'll come and be with you. I don't know what to do, but I'm here. That, that, is, that is a reminder. I really think, and we'll talk about this, but more so than a solution to what is, is, is difficult for someone in their life, person who's struggling wants to be reminded that they've not been forgotten by people who matter the most to them. It's a sense that they, that they have lost their place amongst the, uh, a, a community of, of meaning. Right. That's, that's terrifying. And can feel, I guess, isolated. Very, know? yeah. It's Lonely it and, a... and, and hopeless. Mm. Why is it that you think sometimes communicating to the closest people around us how much they mean to us is difficult. And I had this conversation with a close friend. Yeah. I won't name him because it was a private conversation, but you know him. 
And he said to me, he said, I just really wish I could tell my parents I love them. Mm-hmm. And, and he, I said, well, why don't you? And he just said that, you know, based on his relationship with them and how they've communicated throughout their life, he finds that to be a very difficult thing to express. And of course, this answer could be different for each person. But generally speaking, I guess where I'm getting at is what you're saying just sounds like such a sensible thing to do. Right. Pick up the phone yeah. and tell the people around you that you love them and that they mean so much to you. But often, and I can speak for myself here, you don't do that. And time goes past and relationships drift and people maybe don't fully understand how much they mean to you. So what's the, if there is an answer or or what's the the strategies that maybe exist to help people navigate that? You know, it's so interesting you bring this up because I I recently went through this with someone very, very close to me and it was difficult to do, to do the loving thing doesn't always look like saying, I love you. Doing the loving thing is sometimes saying, I see what you're trying to hide. And that can feel very threatening to the person you're talking to. And what you're, what, the reason why you might feel a, a sense of difficulty from having this conversation with them is because they're in your life right now. And there's a sense that maybe if you say, I see what you're trying to hide, that they might leave. And right now they're there, they're safe, even though they're not protected from what might come down the road. They're here right now, and, and that's where you want them. And so it takes an unbelievable amount of radical honesty to say to that person, I see what you're trying to hide, please stay. Because they may not listen to that second part. And so the sense is, well, they're here, they're not, they're not immediately in harm's way. Maybe I'll just wait a little longer. You know, people are, are we kind of wait till the last minute. We need that, that sense of urgency. And, and sometimes that's great. Sometimes that's what it takes. And, but I think that what people are, are so afraid of doing is, is letting someone know who might feel like their life is a series of failures that even hiding those failures has been a failure. And so there's a sense of wanting to protect that person's effort. Yeah. This whole idea of relations, relationships and, and community is something I've been thinking about a lot more recently and exploring in that like if you look at the research and and, you know on this show we place great emphasis on nutrition and exercise and we talk about longevity and health span but the more and more i read and there's data to 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 back this up when you look at long-term happiness and health span one of if not the key predictors of long-term happiness and um, health long-term health is the nature the quality of the relationships that you have absolutely in your life and so that says to me you can you can endeavor to have the best diet you can endeavor to have the best exercise and no doubt those things are important but if you're not carving out the time to work on relationships in a similar way with a similar sort of degree of intent and i think that some people are naturally better at relationships than others oh yeah um then you may do all of that with your diet and exercise and sleep, but you're probably still leaving a lot of happiness on the table. Yeah. Yeah. It's, um, I would say that the, the, the sense of having a, a connected experience of being alive, that there are these loving and meaningful bonds that give us the sense that we are 
having a, a meaningful experience of being alive. And one of them is a sense that you are part of a valuable, you're a valuable part of a community of shared respect. That your presence, not only in your own life, but in other people's lives has important meaning. And that your absence is something that would be missed greatly. And that your, your presence is important to the goings on of not only your life, but of people that mean the world to you and to whom you mean the world to. The, to have that experience severed from your life, what, what, what urgency would you have to protect your future? What urgency would you have to care for your body, your mind, your spirit? If those meaningful parts of the experience of being alive are severed, your future may not feel like a place you want to be a part of. So the urgency to protect your longevity seems to fade away. And you might seem to be compelled to make decisions that actually make being present in a life with those meaningful bonds severed a little bit less uncomfortable. It might look like processed junk food. It might look like alcohol. It might look like heroin. It might look like marijuana or cocaine. And to the average person, they would say, oh, that person is struggling with substance use disorder. They're, they're an addict. But what's so important to understand, and this is from my own perspective, is that when we talk about addiction, and that's really a conversation I want to have with you today, um, when you witness someone who's struggling with substance use disorder, this is a person whose life doesn't feel like a safe... What is substance? So substance use disorder is, is addiction. I think substance use disorder is a much more accurate way to describe what we call addiction because addiction is just kind of this amorphous term. Substance use disorder literally defines what person is going through. That as a result of one or many factors, substance use has become so overwhelming in their life that it has disordered their ability to show up and live healthily. That's a valuable and accurate description of what's going on. Addiction is a societal term that doesn't really define anything, in my opinion. A person who's struggling with this likely wakes up into a life that they don't feel is a safe, secure, or hopeful place to be, for one of many reasons. They also don't feel that their future is a safe, secure, or hopeful place to be. In fact, it likely looks like an even less safe and potentially very painful place to be. So for this person, their substance use is a twofold attempt. Number one, it's trying to relieve them of the burden of being present in their life as it is today. And they're fine with sacrificing their future because their future isn't a place they want to be a part of anyways. So it's so important to think about it when you look at that story, when you watch that person use, while to us, it looks like nonsensical crazy, to that person, their use looks and feels like self-care. Right. That's useful. So it's a misplaced self-care it's a misplaced so from the outside it looks like quote unquote bad behavior yeah. but these are almost a substitution for something that's lacking yeah and, it, and if you think about those behaviors they're also it's a bit of a positive feedback cycle exactly so if you adopt the ultra processed diet and you let go of sleep hygiene and um, you're using whatever substances yeah. that's then going to have a deleterious effect on, on mental health. Absolutely. So like take my story, for example, you know, I grew up in Texas. I had, uh, I have a twin, a twin brother and a younger sister and I grew up in the 1980s. Right. And so I, uh, you know, it's like the greatest era of unregulated junk food that's ever existed. I mean, every, every movie that came out had a, had a junk cereal to attach to it. It was wonderful. 
and I had a phenomenal childhood, right? I played sports. My dad taught me how to play baseball and basketball. My mom inspired my imagination. I grew up in a privileged household. I had friends in my neighborhood who I played sports with every single day. And it looked like I had a healthy, connected life. And then at one point, I remember I was about 10 years old and I came running into my house. This was the summer in Texas. I was in just my bathing suit and my parents stopped me and they asked me, why do you already have love handles? And I didn't know what they meant. I didn't know what that was. I'd never heard this term before. And so I was confused and I was, I was a little worried because I can get a sense that they were asking me about something that they didn't, they didn't agree with or, or it was worrisome to them. They explained to me what it was and I, I can remember saying, oh, well, you know, so-and-so's dad has those or whatever and why is this a problem? And they're saying, oh, you shouldn't have them. You know, it's a problem and you, know, you must be eating too much. And as a kid, as a kid, difficult to see their intent. Exactly. And here's the thing. It's one thing to be told that once. I continued to receive consistent criticism about my body, which is one thing. But I also at the same time had a dad and have a dad who, but at the time, I mean, this, this guy looked like a superhero. All right. He came in every morning from running like eight miles. He was always training for some marathon. He was always playing basketball with his friends and he would come in with his shirt off full six pack abs. And, and I would hear my dad criticize his own body out loud. That's almost like body dysmorphia in that circumstance. And so what, but what I think is really important is, and this is what, something I tell parents is, you know, more so than what you say to your kids, how you talk to yourself in front of them helps craft that child's inner dialogue. And I began to think to myself, man, if looking like that isn't worth loving, if that's not acceptable and I'm trying hard and I look like this, not only must I be completely unlovable, why should I even try anymore? And I continued to struggle with my self-image for a couple of years and I started to act up in school, obviously. My, one of my loving and meaningful bonds had just been severed, which is a loving and meaningful bond with yourself, both physically and emotionally. I began to believe that there were conditions upon which I was allowed to do that. It's a fine line, right? It's a tricky balance because I can imagine a lot of parents listening to this or maybe their kids have grown up and they're hearing that and they're thinking, well, I just wanted to be the example. I just wanted to, to adopt the healthy habits and have the healthy, you know, strict diet because then my child will also follow in, in my footsteps and adopt that healthy way of living. But it does seem like a bit of a tricky balance because it can sort of the pendulum could swing the other way. But I think you're right though. You know, what we, What's important is to, to know that what kids do more so than, than learning what you tell them is they, they, they mimic what you do, right? They're, they're watching, they're observing, and then they sort of try to do what you're doing. And so I feel like, you know, if my, my dad had come in from running and said, God, I love the, that how I eat allows me to go out and just run for like eight miles. I feel good. I feel amazing. Isn't this great? What, do you want to do you want to try what some of the stuff that dad eats because it makes him feel like a superhero? That's that is conveying a, a sense of being meaningfully connected to a choice that empowers what is important to you in your life. That him being present and, and waking up into a body that feels like a safe, secure, exciting place to be is a loving and meaningful bond that he protects with nutrition, with movement. But I was hearing these self-criticisms 
And so I began to act up in school, right? Because I thought, I don't want anyone to look at me, so let me be a distraction. Let me be, you know, the troublemaker. And I got uh, taken to a doctor, and they, they prescribed me uh, Ritalin uh, because I was diagnosed with ADHD. Again, another person of authority sort of saying to me, hey, guess what? You're not that great. In fact, you're even more broken than you thought. We found this other thing out about you, and what we're going to do this time is we're going to, we're going to give you this pill. And if you can take this pill, what it's going to do is it's going to fix that thing in you that is not very acceptable to the rest of the world. And in fact, the rest of the world would really not like to be aware that you struggle with that. Not the actual words that the doctor was saying, but essentially the messaging that I received. So take this pill and then no one will know that you have this problem because you will behave as if you don't. I think that from that moment on, I sort of began to believe that my life from this point on was going to be a series of situations where I discovered ways about myself that weren't acceptable to other people. And that my goal was to figure out how do I fix or hide that part so that I can become acceptable to the world around me because not being acceptable is a very scary thing for me. We moved to Austin, Texas right before I started high school. I, was, we were, I grew up in Houston. And this is really where I think my my substance use started to uh, come into play. Um, I didn't know anyone at this school. And I was an awkward kid. And most of the kids that, that, <coughs> that go to this high school, they all kind of grow up together. And I got bullied really badly. I mean, to the point where about halfway through my freshman year of school, when I got dropped off at school, the assistant principals had to get eyes on me to make sure that I made it into the school safely. I was getting beat up, I was getting emotionally bullied, I was getting, you know, everything. Rocks thrown at me, you name it. And at about this time, my uh, prescription for Ritalin had been changed to Adderall. And um, I remember taking it in the middle of class. And as I walked out of the class, one of the, one of the guys who would typically kind of, you know, beat me up or mess with me, he just put his arm around me as if, he, as if we were friends and said, you know, hey, listen, I saw, you know, I saw that... Uh, you know, so-and-so was messing with you earlier. I thought I told him not to do that. And, oh, by the way, we have this party this weekend. I really want you to come and, you know, bring that, that Adderall that I saw you taking in class. Just bring it with you. And, look, I may have been awkward. I may not have had many friends, uh, but I wasn't stupid. I knew exactly what was going on. And the wildest thing was I felt so relieved. Because I, it's so important to understand that up until this point, very few parts of my life felt safe. I woke up in the presence of parents who I felt at any minute were going to criticize me, even though an equal amount of time was spent being the best parents in the world. I was always waiting for that criticism. So being in front of my parents didn't always feel safe. Going to school didn't feel safe. My body didn't feel safe. I spent so much of my day going, uh, uh, waking up into a life that I was generally spending a, a good amount of time afraid. And now it seemed like I may have solved uh, one of those problems. I may have figured out a way to not be physically harmed at school. That is just be the guy that gives these, 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 uh, these kids Adderall. Can we go back a tiny bit? Yeah. When you were diagnosed with ADHD. Yeah. If you had a son today yeah. in that same circumstance. Yeah. So it seems like that was a pretty pivotal moment. It, it acted as a, almost a template. You can hide things in your life and that will allow you to kind of show up in the world and be accepted 
which is polar opposite to embracing your uniqueness. So what would you do as a parent today who finds himself in that exact same situation with their child? So if I were to have a child who was diagnosed with ADHD or any kind of learning difference, first thing I would say to that, to that child is, or to my child is number one, I love you. What we've just discovered changes nothing about how I view you and the potential that I see for you and what you want to do in your life. And I want to help empower you to be able to be as successful as you want to be. There's some options here. I want to try to see if we can use food, movement, meditation, and maybe even a little bit of medication that can just help us learn how we can do things a little bit differently so that life feels a little easier and a little safer for you. And that there's absolutely nothing wrong with you, but we just don't know what's the best way for you to be successful in the things that you want to do. Maybe that will work. Who knows? I don't know. But uh, I feel like if I had been told that ADHD and my, my acting up in class wasn't something to be ashamed of, but rather something to be curious about. Why, why does it make so much sense that for you, acting up is a thing to do that's valuable? Why for you does being distracted in class make so much sense based on how you live your life and what's going on in your life? Maybe we can make a little bit of a, an adjustment on these aspects of your life and then the need to act up won't be so great. And if it doesn't change anything, maybe we can use a tool like medication that isn't an indication of failure to see if it can be a, a helpful part of figuring out how you can live your life to the fullest. I think it's just, I was given a very clear message that what they had found out was something that I should not be proud of. That in fact, I should actively be kind of ashamed of. That that's the sense I got that this was something you don't want anyone to find out. And so we're going to put you on this medic- medication because we need you to act just like everyone else. And uh, I, I, I think that that was um, obviously unintentional, but a cultural direction that things were going in the like early 90s was, you know, get the kid on the Adderall, get the kid on the Ritalin, get them quiet, get them calm, you know. Once you're down that path and there's the label and the stigma... comes with it and also there's no other change it was simply just use the medicine so yes it's going to insult the signal that arises that says oh i'm not i'm not i don't feel safe but the things that cause that sense of 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 lack of safety aren't changed there's just a medication that insults a signal and so nothing really changes now i'm just living in a life that doesn't feel safe and giving a medication in order to make it through the day in some sense of like societal norm so the, the underlying signal you feel was a lack of self-love. Absolutely. For you. For me. Right. Absolutely. And um, I, I feel like I wasn't, I wasn't given the opportunity to explore why do you feel that way? Um, do, you, do you feel like there's things that, that are going on that uh, in the way that we're communicating to you that would make you feel safer. And of course, like that's a, that's a high level of, you know, parenting skills that very few people have, but I, parenting's hard work. (laughs) (laughs) And particularly if you're busy trying to make a living and yeah, you know, it's not, not an easy task. Yeah, no. And so 
by the time I was in high school and I get to this party and I'm telling you, man, I, 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 when I used Adderall as a recreational drug for the first time, I was, I was hooked. And I'm telling you, it was not to the substance. It was to what this stuff seemed to do for me because I was, I was shy. I was scared all the time. And Adderall delivered this sense of unbelievable confidence and energy uh, that I had never experienced before. And I was able to interact with people and, and have communications and conversations with people that I'd never been confident enough to do. And so I was able to make friends for the first time. Uh, I wasn't getting beat up for the first time. I, was, I had unbelievable amounts of energy, so parties were now fun, and I actually made the party a little bit more fun because I was bringing a little bit of the, the Adderall to the party. And so what happened overnight was that all of the things that seemed to contribute to my life feeling like an unsafe and unsecure and, and, and painful place to be seemed to be solved with unbelievable ease and unbelievable repeatability. That's incredibly attractive to someone whose life feels like they have no control over it. They don't want to be present in it. And if you can just, I think it's the ease and repeatability part that's so important. It costs me almost nothing to solve those problems. And it seemed to make my life look like the place I've always needed it to look. I was overweight. I was awkward. And Adderall is amphetamine. It, that's yeah. what the stuff is. How old were you at this uh, stage? 15, 16. Right. And um, so I was able to lose weight with ease and repeatability, really very little effort. Um, I was able to make friends and gain confidence with ease and repeatability. I was able to stop being harmed with ease and repeatability. And you got the Adderall by just going to various doctors. Well, that time I was prescribed uh, by a doctor and, and I wasn't using that much, you know. And so I, if, 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 uh, if I ran out a little early, it was no big deal. I wasn't like... I wasn't compulsively needing it at this point. It was, a, it was a solution that felt like for the first time I was caring and loving parts of myself. Uh, I would say it looked exactly like self-care. Everything that it solved and everything that it changed in my life was a thing that made my life painful. My weight, my lack of confidence, my bullying, my relationship with my parents got better because I, not just because I was losing weight, but because I also started to engage in school like a healthy, connected kid. All of the things that made my life miserable were now cared for. They felt safe. My future looked hopeful, right? My, uh, I was excited to show up in my life and Adderall seemed to make that possible. So I bonded with it. I truly believe there's a, an author named Johan Hari. He wrote a book called Lost Connections. I think it's one of the best books on mental health I've ever read. He says, we shouldn't call it addiction. We should call it bonding. Because what this person is doing is creating a loving and meaningful bond with a behavior or a substance that seems to care for things in their life that they've never been able to care for with ease and repeatability. That is an incredibly accurate description of what is going on. And that's exactly what happened for me. And I used it. Was it at that stage? Yeah. Was it substance abuse? Or do you feel like at that stage, the sort of way that you were taking it yeah. was actually of some value? And then it becomes substance abuse when you're you know, abusing it and taking it above the indicated level dosage? Well, I would say it's a little bit of both. Because there was no caution 
for how I was using it. I was always using more than I was prescribed at this point because that's what I needed in order to feel like these, these parts of my life were cared for properly. And I had no sense or had created no uh, sort of boundary to which I wouldn't cross. And I was literally just believing that this was never going to be a problem, that I'd figured it out. I'd figured out how to show up in my life and have life feel like a great place to be. And so it worked. It worked. I mean, I lost the weight. I had friends. I had girlfriends. I, had, I got a scholarship to the college that I wanted to go to. And that's where the story of, a, of the, the typical story of the addict for me really started to take place was in college. And this is what will happen for the majority of people in my situation is you're going to hit a point in your use where, use, where what you take is not enough. We know that. We know that. We also know that at a certain point for the majority of people, not enough is going to always be happening to you, no matter how much you take. You're going to reach a point where that's not enough anymore. You're going to look for a little bit more, or you're going to look for a little bit bigger bang for your buck. Is that a, a personality type uh, trait that would predict who is going to end up that's abusing a really good it, question. or is it genetic? Do we have any kind of way of screening and predicting? There's... I don't believe there's any way to screen or predict for it. There are certain there are certain genetic aspects to one person being more of a quote-unquote dopamine-seeking individual than the other person. There's interesting like sociological tests that have been done where like there's you know you take two kids and you put them in a in a room and and you put uh, one marshmallow in front of them and you say look what we're gonna do is we're gonna leave and you can have this marshmallow now but if we come back and it's still here we're gonna give you another one and you can have two. And what they're trying to predict is, does this, this child or this person uh, employ what's called willpower? And willpower is the ability to forego instant gratification for long-term benefit of greater gratification over time. That, that is not something that very, comes very easily to the human species. Uh, most of us are trying to get the most for the least. How do I get the most amount of pleasure for the least amount of pain and the least amount of energy? And that is because we have spent the majority of our evolutionary story trying to outcompete environments of unbelievable scarcity, competition, and danger. So we are designed, we have a psychological and motivational architecture that is always trying to get as much pleasure as we can for as little time and energy as possible. Survival. Survival, exactly. That helps. And like us. We, we've talked about, you've talked about this, I've talked about this. Survival doesn't care about what happens in 10 years. Survival cares about you getting what you need to make it to tomorrow. And if, if given the opportunity to get the most amount of pleasure for the least amount of effort, we are likely to be driven to make that decision. And so this, this is a part of the architecture that drives what's called addiction. If you've tuned in to the many episodes I've done focusing on cardiovascular disease, the leading cause of death globally, you'll be well aware that ApoB is a better biomarker for measuring our risk of having a heart attack or stroke than LDL cholesterol. The only problem is that not every pathology lab is set up to test ApoB levels. Fortunately, this has now been made easier by Inside Tracker, a leading health and wellness company founded in 2009 by experts in aging, genetics, and biometric data from Harvard, MIT, and Tufts that provides lifestyle advice based on your blood test results. With the new edition of ApoB, InsideTracker's ultimate plan now analyzes 44 biomarkers, including metabolic health markers like HbA1c, triglycerides, and blood glucose, important nutrients like vitamin D and iron, 
as well as hormones like cortisol, sex hormone binding globulin, free testosterone, and total testosterone, before giving you science-backed lifestyle advice to optimize your health and longevity. Your data tells the story of your health. With Inside Tracker, get to know your story and create a lifestyle that delivers better health for longer. Get 20% off the entire Inside Tracker store. To get started and redeem this offer, go to insidetracker.com forward slash Simon. That's insidetracker.com forward slash Simon. Hey friends, the scientific evidence on lifestyle habits that lead to longevity is clear. Now it's time to put this knowledge into action. I'm excited to announce the Living Proof Longevity Challenge, a 12-week program to build evidence-based lifestyle habits to optimize longevity. My team and I have transformed over hundreds of hours of conversations with experts on aging, nutrition, and exercise into a life-changing 12-week program that will challenge you to develop habits that lead to a longer, better life. This is a unique opportunity to gather health data about yourself that has the potential to change your life for the better. You'll start by testing 10 longevity biomarkers that tell the truth about where your longevity stands right now, today. Following that, you'll get a personalized longevity score to guide your 12 weeks of habit building that will boost your score and improve your biomarkers for the better. After the challenge, you'll retest your 10 biomarkers and see the proof of how powerful these science-backed habits really are. Head over to theproof.com forward slash livingproof to download your zero-cost copy of the Living Proof Longevity Challenge today. That's theproof.com forward slash livingproof. Look forward to joining you on this journey. On the marshmallow experiment, yeah. there was a follow-up experiment. Yeah. And the first experiment was as you uh, described it, where they, they looked at um, can, can some kids... Uh, wait a certain period of time, and if they do wait and donate the marshmallow, they'll be given an, another one. Right. And and sure enough, some some kids were able to wait, but many weren't. Right. And what I thought was really interesting, they ran another experiment, and I think it used uh, crowns, you know, the, the that you write with. Yeah. And so before they ran the marshmallow experiment, they they did another little experiment where they told kids that if they did something, they'd get these crowns. I might be slightly misquoting this study, but this is yeah. the basic premise. And the kids that that did whatever they were asked to do, some of them they came back and gave crowns, and the other ones they didn't. And what? so the difference between that is you're creating trust or distrust in your environment. Yeah. So then they ran the marshmallow experiment, and you can probably predict what happened. Yeah. The kids who were told, wait for the, and you'll get another marshmallow, if they had previously been in an environment of distrust, yeah. they didn't wait. There you go. The kids who had this prior example of trust, yeah. okay, I do wait, they were, most of them were, were able to actually wait. And see, that's why I don't put 100% confidence in studies like the marshmallow study, because it's, it's just showing you what happens to that individual as they are right now with no pre-context or post-context like we don't know what happened to them before we don't know who they are we don't know where they come from we're just watching this one piece of content which is did they wait or not that's interesting but it's not the whole story and so again like when we talk about addiction when we talk about mental illness everyone is trying to give out give out really great pieces of content 
but context is so important. Context is the most important when we're talking about things like mental illness. Like if, if someone were to look at my story and go, well, what, when did you start using Adderall? Well, I started in high school. And they go, okay, well, how much did you use? And were you using at parties? And I said, yeah, I did. I started using at parties. They go, well, that's it. The party drug culture got you caught. And the minute you started using too much, the chemical hooks in the substance got you addicted to Adderall and it ruined your life by the time you were in college. That's the story of addiction. But they, without understanding the context, we can't understand why that made so much sense for me. Why didn't the other people that were using go down the same road? That's what makes emotional well-being, mental health, giving someone advice, incredibly complex and difficult. Very. And there is a lot of unsolicited advice. There's so much unsolicited advice. And I can understand why people have people in their life that are hurting. Maybe they're hurting. And they want to have a sense of understanding that how, what part of this is my fault and what part isn't. Well, let's, let's take those options off the table. I think that what is so important is to make sense of why what you do seems valuable to you. Everyone looks, I, well, I don't want to say everyone, a lot of people look at mental illness and addiction as a, an act that doesn't make sense. I don't understand why they would do that. Don't you know? Doesn't everyone know what happens to the person who starts using drugs? It doesn't, their life doesn't get better in 20 years. Why would you do that? That doesn't make sense. That's crazy. No, it's not crazy. If you actually sat down with that person and you listened to their story, I guarantee you their use would make a lot of sense. That this is not such a riddle. This is not a person making a crazy decision. This is a person who is in unbelievable pain and very confused as to how they got there. They don't know how they let it get to that point. They also don't know how to get out of it. They also don't know that it's okay not to know how to get out of it. And typically what they're struggling with is cloaked in so much societal shame and stigma that the idea of presenting to someone that they're struggling with it might make them feel like they're going to be cut out even further from the people's lives who care about them or that they care about. Like for me, by the time I was in college, my use got so out of hand that I dropped out. I dropped out of school, I came home, I told my parents I was gonna get a job and work for a year, but I had no intention of going back to school, and I ended up on the streets selling drugs and buying drugs and stealing from people and, and abusing my family verbally and, and treating my family like, like absolute garbage. And about five years after that, I was 350 pounds. Did you have many close friendships? I did, but I made sure that they couldn't. I was putting on a mask. I was doing everything I could to keep people away from me because I didn't even know what was going on. You know, I, I, I fully intended to figure this thing out because I couldn't understand how in the world did this thing, which was once the greatest solution I had ever found in my life, this thing that had once made my life finally feel like a safe place to be, how in the world did that become the most overwhelming problem I had ever dealt with in my life? How did it become such a motivator for the catastrophe that I was dis discovering in my life? How could it be making my life painful? And there's such a sense that like, I remember what it felt like when it worked. 
So I'm just going to get it to work again because when it works, nothing has felt that successful. I just need more. I need more time and I need people to leave me alone because if I can figure this thing out, it's going to work. You don't know what it felt like when it did work and you don't know what my life felt like before I had it. So leave me alone. Let me get more and I'll figure this thing out and then I'll be back. It's this mental like mind fuck that goes on in your head where you're like, you truly believe you're going to solve this thing, even though you know there's a part of you that knows it's never going to be solved. It's never going to be solved. You're never going to get enough. It's never coming back. You're in trouble. But the problem is I had to go to tell people who already I had a sense thought he's put on a hundred and something pounds in the last five years. He's doing drugs all the time. He's losing jobs left and right. He's not taking care of himself. He's not showering. He smells bad. He's, he looks toxic. He smells toxic. He's already just an absolute loser. If I actually admit that I don't know what I'm doing in my life, if I was actually to say, hey, look, you're right. I am struggling with drugs. Now I got to tell you how much I'm actually struggling with. They may never want to see me again. So to protect that potential of coming back to them, I have to keep this secret and solve it on my own. And man, it was so out of control. I was, so that was fear of how they would see you? Absolutely. It was fear of them fully seeing me. It, look, you, I couldn't hide it from people. I was consuming about 5,000 calories of fast food a day. The average prescription for Adderall is about 10 to 20 milligrams for every 24 hours. I was doing a minimum of 450 milligrams a day, upwards of 1,000 milligrams a day. And I would do it for like six days straight. I wouldn't sleep. I wouldn't eat. I'd end up in a drug-induced psychosis by day five. Then I'd pop opiates to go to sleep for a couple days, wake up, binge on fast food. Uh, I was plowing through money. I was weeks away from being homeless. I mean, everything about my life was a train wreck. So it was obvious I was struggling. But if people actually knew what a struggle I was dealing with, they, I was afraid, they'd be like, oh, no, no more. I can't, I can't have you around. Then it's, like I said before, I didn't want someone to solve my problem. I wanted them to tell me that it was okay for me to be struggling and that I would always have a place for myself within them, like in that circle of trust, in that circle of family, in that circle of friends, that even if I came out and told you exactly who I was and exactly what I was struggling with, you were still going to hug me and tell me you love me. I was afraid of that not being real. Now with everything that you know, in retrospect, yeah. did you need to be scared of that? You know, for, for my story to play out the way it did, yeah. Um, and, and, you know, the, the only way I, that it could have happened where I wasn't going to be scared of that is if someone had reminded me there was no need for me to be scared of that. But people don't know how to deal with someone who's that far gone. It, it's a terrifying thing. And like you said, people are, are, you know, everyone's trying to tell you that, oh, this is the right way to do it or that's the right way to do it. So you're so afraid of making a mistake that, you, that could cost you, you know, your family member, your friend's life that a lot of the times you just... Well, they're still here. I don't think they're going to be harmed tomorrow. Let's just wait till tomorrow. So what, what is the right approach then? If someone listening right now and they have an atom of 10 years ago in their life that they're worried about, that they find uh, difficult to have conversations and uh, pull down some of the walls yeah. and get behind the mask and have a real conversation about what's happening, that, that's difficult for them what's what can they do 
Well, I know what my family did. Um, you know, my dad uh, and I, we, we had a really tough relationship uh, through my teenage years and, and into my early to mid-20s. And, um, you know, my dad had lost his father. When, he, when my, my dad was 25, his father died from colon cancer. And, uh, and his, pro- his diagnosis, the time which he was diagnosed at the time that he died was rather quick. Um, and so my dad, you know, number one, had a fear of losing people. You know, his sister would die from uh, heart failure due to uncontrolled diabetes. Uh, his mom would die from an accident. You know, he's, he's suffered a lot of loss. And, um, and here he was watching his son, you know, going towards a point where he might not be present in his life. It's a scary thing for him to watch. Um, and also being at an age when, you know, my dad was 25 when his dad died and I was almost 30. So there's five years of, of gap where I don't know what it's like. I don't know what the father son relationship looks like. And, um, my dad came to me and, and he said, you know, Adam, look, I see you're struggling and, and I want you to know it's okay. Uh, I, I know people who've, who've struggled like this. I know I, 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 and, and they've gone to places and they've gotten help and they're great and no one thinks poorly of them. But you know, the thing was, is like my life was so painful that I wasn't willing to give up what was allowing me to escape a life that was too painful a place to be on the gamble that this like place that my dad wanted me to go to might work out for me in a year. The idea of the extraordinary effort that it would require to figure out how I would feel good in my life, maybe in a year, maybe in two years, was too difficult a task for me to, to attempt. And so unfortunately, every time my dad and my mom would lovingly come up to me and offer me help, I just, I, I couldn't do it. I couldn't do it because I was afraid. Uh, I was afraid I would fail. Um, I was afraid that I would find out that life wasn't going to be a place I wanted to be a part of without drugs. And um, it was it was unfortunate because for me, um, I had to survive suicide in order to uh, to actually decide that I needed to do something different. Um, And that was on August 21st of 2012. I was 30 years old. I had erectile dysfunction for reasons I didn't understand. Um, I had infected cuts on my legs from scratching mosquito bites that wouldn't heal for reasons I didn't understand. Um, I was, I was clearly diabetic, but I didn't know it because I was, you know, having, I was thirsty all the time. I was going to the bathroom every, you know, 20 minutes. I was broke and, and life hurt. Life hurt in every sense of the word. I, life hurt emotionally, life hurt physically life hurts spiritually and I'm not that spiritual of a person, but it still hurts spiritually. And every single day that I was alive was the most painful day I'd ever had. And I was living every single day in full confidence that tomorrow was going to be even more painful. And you know, eventually you're going to reach a point where tomorrow is just not something you want to be a part of. And Which is a reality for a lot of people. Yeah. I think I looked up some statistics before today yeah and you would know these but i think it's worth sharing with the listeners more than seven hundred thousand people commit suicide every year across the world which is one person every 40 seconds yeah just think about that for a moment that's a lot of pain yeah one person every 40 seconds and like your circumstance there's many more that think about it 
and attempt suicide who are often left out of the conversation who survive but that's thought to be 20 times the number of people those 700,000 people per year that that yeah. die from suicide and you know it's it's wild because um i remember what i felt like when i when i attempted um and i attempted by overdose and and i can remember feeling like i had i had reached a point to where it, it's almost like I wasn't thinking anymore. And it was, it was just almost like this automatic action of just grabbing pills and swallowing them. And, uh, you know, look, I'd, I've been struggling with substance use for over 10 years at that point. And so overdosing wasn't something I was, you know, new to. I'd, I'd, I'd had a few almost overdoses. I'd had a few minor overdoses. Um, but this felt distinctly different. And I can remember I was sitting on a couch like this. And, and I started to feel very strange. I started to sweat a lot. I started to get very nauseous, which was not, uh, you know, I, I, I had no idea what I was going to experience. And, and I can remember I tried to stand up off the couch. And as I did, my entire right side of my body cramped. It felt like I got stabbed in the right side with a hot knife and I like buckled over. And as I did, I, I tried to catch myself on the coffee table in front of me. And all this vision just starts to go black from my periphery. That feeling when you get kind of lightheaded, when you stand up too quickly, your blood pressure drops and you get all lightheaded. It was like that, but very intense, very kind of claustrophobic feeling. And I, I had this realization that what was happening was I was experiencing the last minute of my life, the last second of my life. And believe me when I tell you I was terrified. Um... And I don't remember what happened next. I just remember waking up on the floor several hours later in a puddle of my own vomit in a pile of fast food garbage. And it took me, I would say, the better part of the next hour to really come to grips with it, with what had just taken place. And when I did really come to understand what had just taken place, I have never felt such relief in my entire life. And that was the moment that my life changed. Because... That relief can only take place if there was something about my life and myself that I loved enough that even though I knew what I was about to experience was the most painful day of my life, I was relieved to still be a part of it. That I was relieved that I had failed. That this was something I actually didn't want to leave. I wanted to be here. And look, I was that guy. I was that guy that you probably know someone like this person, like this, like who I was. And in fact, if you were a friend of mine back then and you loved me, or if you were a family member of mine and you loved me, you would have come up to me and you would have said, Adam, what the fuck are you doing? Don't you see what your drug use is doing? Don't you see what it's doing to yourself and to your family? Why won't you stop? And I would have looked you in the eye and said, I mean, fuck you, Simon. You don't know me. You have no idea how painful my life is, and you don't know the relief I get when I use. So unless you're here to solve my life for me right now, this is how I'm going to live my life. And you know what? If this shit costs me 10 years, fine. I'm fine with it. And I used to say that all the time. So you feel misunderstood by everyone. Yeah. And, you know, I think about it now. Um, you know, if I had been successful on August 21st of 2012, you know, uh, what would my family not give up for 10 more years with me? God, I used, to, I used to say, you know, if this cost me 10 years, fine, all the time. I used to do it all the time. 10 years. I, you know, what would, what would I not do? 
for the for my friends who I've lost. And I've lost six friends to suicide and overdose since getting sober. What would I not do for six more days with those people? For 10 more days with those people? For 10 more minutes with those people? God, you know, it's like um, the things that we choose to believe have real consequences. Uh, but they're not just on us. They're on the people that we care about. Um, and I really did come to realize that what suicide actually is, and I, I'm going to say this with certainty, what suicide actually is, it is not someone wanting to take their life. It is someone wanting to end their pain. That's what it is. It's a pain that they just don't understand. They don't know how it got that bad. They don't know how to get out of it. They're ashamed that it got that bad and they're ashamed that they don't know how to get out of it and they feel incredibly alone and they just cannot deal with tomorrow because today was so unbearable that tomorrow is not a place they wanna be and so they end it. They're not ending their life. If they could, if they could solve it with ease and repeatability, if there was a sense that they could figure this out, oh my God, would they ever grab a hold of it? They would. There's a lot of talk, you probably hear this, the belief that suicide is a selfish act. I, I can understand why people think that way. I think I've, to be honest, I've probably thought that myself. At some hey, I, I guarantee you, I bet I thought that too before you know I uh, went through what I went through. And I think it comes from a perspective of looking at someone who's struggling and going, well, you know what? I know what the worst day of my life felt like, and I never wanted to end my life. How selfish do you have to be to want to end your life just because you've had a hard day? And what you're trying to do is create a sense of separation that like that could never be you because that's a safe thing to do say, oh, that could never be me. I'm going to prove it to you, every single person here. I've had awful days, and I never thought about any of my life. That's a selfish person over there, and I'm not a selfish person. But a much more accurate way to think about it is, I've had really awful days, and I've never wanted to end my life. I can't imagine what that person's going through. Conversation over. You don't have a right to speak about whether it's selfish or not, because you can't even imagine what that person is going through. The only thing you should say is, how do we find out how to help that person? Like when I told you, people would always come up to me and they'd say, why won't you stop? That's the average question asked in recovery. How do we get you to stop? Well, we're going to figure out how to get you to stop using. Let's figure out how to get you to, to stop using for the rest of your life. Do you know how terrifying that is? to ask of a person whose whole sense of safety is bonded with their substance, that I think that's actually a detrimental question to ask and actually a very detrimental thing to, to suggest of a person in recovery. I think a much more valuable way to approach recovery is to say to that person, why does your use make sense? Why for you is using so important why for you does using a meaningful act in your life? And if we can answer that question, let's start using that answer to reorganize your life, your priorities and values so that we can help you craft a life where your use becomes less necessary. You might actually use one day. That's okay. We're not trying to get you to never use again. We're trying to get to a point where your life feels so safe that use is no longer disordering your ability to be safe and healthy. That's recovery. To create a sense that abstinence is the solution is inaccurate. 
People aren't addicts because substance use, substances exist in the world. There are people who use and are not dealing with substance use disorder. The reason why the use becomes disordered is rooted in a sense that their life without it is too difficult to deal with. So the solution is reorganizing the life. When I checked into treatment, I found out within 72 hours that I had type 2 diabetes, high blood pressure, high cholesterol, erectile dysfunction, drug-induced bipolar disorder, suicidal depression, anxiety disorder, sleep disorder, attention deficit disorder, and obsessive-compulsive personality disorder. They put me on a cabinet's worth of medication, and they told me, here's what we're going to do. You're going to be on these medications for the rest of your life. I want you to go to a, a program where you can affirm that you're an addict every single day, and we need you to abstain from substance use. That's recovery. And if you can do that long enough, there's a chance that your life is going to become an enjoyable place to be. And for whatever reason, and I had no right to believe I knew any better, I just felt that was wrong. I felt like that doesn't really make a lot of sense to me, and it kind of like rubbed me the wrong way. What I wanted to do was reverse engineer the experience of feeling fully alive in a meaningful way. I wanted to be the architect of a life that felt like such a safe, secure, and hopeful place that I didn't need drugs anymore. That even if they were in the environment, I wouldn't feel compelled to use them because I didn't want to not be present. I wanted to be here. I wanted to show up. I wanted to have a bad day. I wanted to have great days. I wanted to have so-so days. I wanted my life to feel like what I wanted to be connected to. Mm. And so if what I could, was it, though, that, that changed your perspective? I think it was, I think it was the, the sense that, number one, I had to create an identity around being an addict. And I don't know why. I think it's that I'm kind of a stubborn prick, but like people telling me that I had to be something made me really angry. Um, I think at that time in my life, I was a very stubborn guy and I, I didn't want to create an identity that I was an addict. It didn't feel right. You know, it's not who I was. It was what I was struggling with. But it took all of this to sort of come to a head August yeah. 21st oh, yeah. to then go into this clinic where you were diagnosed yeah. and given these labels. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, I checked into uh, treatment in Tucson, Arizona, and within 72 hours, I'd gotten all these diagnosed, diagnostic tests done. I had, you know, look, detox is a very uncomfortable experience. Um, you're put through a bunch of psychological evaluations, medical evaluations, physical evaluations. You feel like a criminal, you feel dehumanized. But it is, in fact, it is careful. It's caring. That's what's happening. These people are caring for you. It may not feel like it, especially if you're a person who's new in recovery and you're, you're thinking back to that, that experience. You're like, God, that was awful. They treated me like a criminal. They treated me like a, you know, an experiment. No, they weren't. They were trying to figure out how to best care for you. Um, people who engage in substance use to the degree where their life is disordered typically they typically engage in other behaviors that put other areas of their life at risk, right? We don't really, I, for one, I, I basically ate whatever the hell I wanted, mostly junk food. I engaged in alcohol use, opiate use, stimulant use. I barely slept well. I certainly drink, didn't drink a lot of water. It was mostly just Coca-Cola. Um, I would also go out partying. I would do a lot of things that would put a lot of other uh, parts of my health at risk, metabolic risk, um, and so psychological risk. So they want to know, where are you? What else is going on? How do we best care for you? And that's when I found out that I had di diabetes and heart disease. And, and uh, you know, I knew about the erectile dysfunction. 
Um, and I just felt like in order to ever feel like life was going to be a place I wanted to be a part of, I had to solve number one, feeling like my body was a place I wanted to actively show up and be present for that. My body felt like a safe, secure, and hopeful place to be. I'm going to keep using those three words, safe, secure, and hopeful. It's very important. And I had recently attended an event hosted by a man named Rip Esselstyn about a year before I, I, uh, overdosed, uh, and tried to suicide. I got the opportunity to hear a man named Rip Esselstyn speak about something that I had never heard of at the time, which was a, a plant-based diet. Now I'd heard vegan before, but I'd never heard the term plant-based diet. And I was there at this event with him for like five, six days with him and people like Dr. Michael Clapper and Dr. Caldwell Esselstyn and Doug Lyle and Jeff Novick. And they were talking about the use of what I call nutritional technology, using food as a technology to reorganize your health. And that if you could live in an environment that looked like a low-fat, low fiber-rich, plant-based diet, you could reclaim your health. And at the time, I thought, you know what, here's the deal. I don't know shit about nutrition. I don't know anything about health. I certainly don't know how to care for my body with food. But I do know one thing. I know how to put food on a plate and eat it. What I want to do is let me just try this plant-based thing. Let me try this thing that Rip had, had talked about at this retreat. Let me see if it works. I don't know. Maybe it will. And I decided what I wanted to do was instead of not use drugs, I wanted to replace drug use with plant-based nutrition. Something I like to describe as active recovery. Instead of trying to not use, which was what I would call passive recovery, I wanted to actively replace my use with healthy plant-rich meals three times a day. Instead of organizing my life about around what I use, how much I use, when I use, where I use. I wanted to organize my day and my life around what I eat, how much do I eat, when do I eat, where do I eat, so that my life is organized around self-care acts. Um, I wasn't allowed to do that in, in the rehab hospital. They were not allowed to, about to let me change my diet. So I moved into a sober living facility after 37 days of rehab. And in fact, the facility is about five blocks from where we are right now on the beach here in Santa Monica. And I check in and there's about 12 other guys there in their twenties and they're all trying to do the same thing as me. They're all trying to, to figure out how we're going to do this thing called life without our drugs anymore. And I walk into the kitchen and, and in this place is you're allowed to choose what you want to eat. You write out a list of foods that they, and they send someone to the grocery store every week and they bring back those foods and they stock the kitchen. And man, this kitchen looked like it had been stocked by nothing but teenagers watching Nickelodeon commercials from the 90s. I mean, it was just like Hot Pockets and string cheese and Fruity Pebbles, and which Fruity Pebbles is the best cereal of all time. <laughs> but um, I, I remember I, I walked up to the house manager whose last name is literally Hamburger and told him that, look, what I really want to do is I want to do this plant-based thing. Here's a list of foods. It, I, I think it's just, it's so great that, I can honestly say that my plant-based journey started with a hamburger. And uh, at the time, I really didn't know much about plant-based diets. I had been to this thing. I remembered what they talked about. So I had a list that was about this big. It was like five items, oats, potatoes, beans, rice, and a couple of sauces. And that's what he got for me. And I got up the next morning and I was crazy motivated. Like I was really inspired. I was going to do this thing. And I go to the pantry, I open it up, 
And there right next to my oatmeal is a box of Fruity Pebbles. And as I mentioned, Fruity Pebbles is the greatest cereal of all time. It is still the best, most tasty cereal you will ever eat in your life. And I got furious, like throwing shit at people and ran out of the house. And I, it, was, it was a wild scene. And that, the assistant house manager is a guy named Luke Chittick. He ran after me and he grabbed me by the shoulder. I was running down Venice Boardwalk. I don't know where I was going. I just needed to be somewhere else. And he was like, dude, what in the world just happened? All I know is I saw you going in the kitchen to make breakfast. And the next thing I know, you're throwing a fit, throwing shit at people. And then you ran out of the house. And I just, I was, I was so angry that I couldn't answer this question. Why in the world did this feel hard? I knew what I wanted to do. I knew how to do it. And I had the tools to do it. And yet I didn't want to do it. Why? Why couldn't this whole thing simply be a matter of intellect and will? Knowing what to do, wanting to do it, then you do it. I don't know why it felt so hard to make that choice. It felt so hard to say, not Fruity Pebbles, yes, oatmeal. And I didn't get it. And I felt like a failure. I felt like this, this, that that was an indication of how the rest of my life was going to feel. And I got very scared. And so I responded with, from being, by being scared. And I, I got angry and I ran away. And I came back and started to think about, you know, was there any way I could fig- help figure this out? And, and that's when I remembered Doug Lyle. And uh, Doug Lyle is the co-author of a book called The Pleasure Trap with a, a Dr. Alan Goldhammer. And he also gives a TED Talk called The Pleasure Trap, which describes the biological mechanism that compels animal behavior. And I, I watched this 17 minutes, and I will tell you to this day, nothing has had more of a profound impact on my on my ability to change my life than those 17 minutes. After those 17 minutes were over, I felt unbelievable relief. What he explains in The Pleasure Trap is that there is a biological mechanism built into our, into our DNA that operates as a guidance system that tries to help us figure out what's the right move to make in any given environment. But this guidance system has been crafted and, and tuned over the course of our evolutionary story, which as I mentioned earlier, we spent 99% of it in environments of scarcity, competition, and danger, where the best psychology to occupy is a psychology of trying to get the most for the least, a psychology that wants more for less. If you can figure that out, you're going to win. But over the last 50 to 100 years, our environment has made a radical shift to where now we went from an environment of scarcity, competition, danger, to an environment of abundance and ease and convenience. And our psychology and our motivational architecture has no understanding that the shift has occurred. Our compulsion, our motivation is still to try to get the most for the least. But in the modern environment, we end up making decisions that we think and feel are biologically successful when in fact they're self-destructive. And the way that we feel like things are biologically successful is dependent by how much dopamine they produce. Yeah, so what do you, reflecting on that and your experience, what do you think explains why some people find that harder than others? Yeah, that's a really good question, and I honestly don't know the answer to that. I think that there is a lot to do with needing to have an unbelievable attraction to safety. Um, Typically, I believe you're going to see people who've experienced trauma or have experienced hardship seeking dopamine a lot greater than those who haven't and i know everyone's had hard days and had hard things but you know 
uh, people who have really been through some difficult moments, they're triggered into a needing a sense of safety that can be that can be acquired from the environment a lot easier uh, in the modern environment with foods like junk foods or drugs or alcohol. Um, and they're more likely to engage and, and go after those than that person who maybe hasn't had such a traumatic experience. But then again, I know a lot of people who've gone through traumatic stuff and just never, from from my perspective, don't seem to have dealt with. Doesn't show up in that doesn't way. Doesn't show up in that way. Right. So do you feel in some ways these, whether it's the the drug or the food, it it's offering comfort, but also a distraction from Very exploring. Yeah, you know, how you're really feeling. Absolutely. It is a, like I said, it's trying to care for something that you cannot care for yourself. If I knew how to feel what I felt and be safe, have a sense of safety that, that I was okay, that I was in a secure place to be, or that there were tools that I could utilize that could give me a sense of safety with the same ease and repeatability that the cheeseburger or the Adderall had, I would use it, but I didn't have it. And so the Adderall was incredibly attractive to me. It's very attractive to my motivational psychology. And evolutionary psychology, which is what the pleasure trap is all about, really explains that mechanism. I like to tell people evolutionary psychology gets half the story 100% right. Um, that there's, there's a whole part of it that's left out, and that is the belief that what you've dealt with doesn't really play a role, um, that really it's about environmental cues. And yes, environmental cues are important, but you and I know this, that... We've seen data that show that just some people just, no matter how much you change the environment, they just don't do well. So what's that? What's going on there? But I needed to understand evolutionary psychology because I needed to understand that what happens is when you seek out something that gives you a dopamine response, sex, food, those are the two main dopamine uh, producing Mm, activities. Survival of the species. You get a lift in the dopamine circuitry. And that lift in the dopamine circuitry gives you a sense that you have statistically rewarded your likelihood of survival. The greater the lift, the greater the feeling that tomorrow is safe and that you're going to make it there. Well, we now live in an environment where there are far more calories per bite than have ever existed in human history. And the lift in the dopamine circuitry is greater than it's ever been in human history. And the ability to repeat that decision is greater than it's ever been. And so we're seeking those things out, thinking and feeling like we're doing really self, uh, really uh, um, productive things when in fact we can be self-destructive. Doug Lyle gives a really cool analogy of this. He ta- tells a story that if you were to go outside at night and you were to leave your porch light on, what you'll notice is that there are moths and they're flying to the light and they're hitting it and then they're fluttering down and they're hitting it and they're fluttering down. And the reason why they do this is because they're actually designed by nature to use the brightest lights in the sky, celestial objects for navigation. But when the brightest light in the sky is now your porch light, they get confused. Their natural guidance system is thinking and feeling it's doing the right thing. They flutter down, they hit it, they do it again and again, and eventually they're going to die. Right. So you get a, a mismatch between the biology of the organism and the, environment. and the artificial environment. What's happened is by messing with the environment, by introducing a supernormal stimulus, a stimulus that is not supposed to be there, that is not representative of that creature's natural history and natural behavior, that creature now runs the threat of making decisions, thinking and feeling like it's doing incredibly good things, when in fact it's self-destructive, potentially even fatal. So what's the answer uh, to 
you know, short of going back and living in caves, yeah. are we talking about just understanding the seductive nature of various things in our environment and being able to exhibit great willpower? Or what's, yeah. what's the answer here? I don't think it's willpower. I think, number one, the most important thing we can do is create a sense of understanding. There's so much shame and stigma wrapped around why, well, well, that person did it. Why can't you? You know, the, the whole, if you, if you just had the same determination and willpower and, and grit as that individual over there, you would have done it. I think that's unfortunate. I know that that's what I felt in that moment when I saw the Fruity Pebbles and the oatmeal. But watching and listening to what Doug Lyle had to say, what I realized was that I had become habituated to these supernormal stimulus, to these supernormal foods, and that the reason why it felt hard is because that is the appropriate response my psychology should be having. That is exactly what I should be feeling. That is absolutely the reasonable response my psychology should be having to a decision that looked that attractive. That's not an indication of me being broken. It's an indication of having dopamine receptors that have been dulled over time and require supernormal stimulus to feel successful. It's an indication of a person who's lived his life who has never been given permission to explore his feelings in a safe way and doesn't know how to do so and commonly used dopamine-producing uh, behaviors to insult signals that felt unsafe. That's what was going on. It allowed me to, re to remove the shame that I was not willful enough. It wasn't that I didn't want it. That's exactly how it should have felt. What I came to understand was that if I was really going to do this thing, I was going to have to be willing to be comfortable being uncomfortable. That what I needed to understand was that if I ever got angry about this thing, if I ever felt like, you know, I know I want to go that way, but for whatever reason, I really feel like I should still keep going that way. That is not me not wanting to do this thing. That likely is just an indication that I have not yet readjusted my guidance system back to what is representative of my natural history. And I just have to keep doing what I know to be true and what I know to be healthy and what I know to be the right choice long enough for my internal guidance system to self-correct. And if I can do that long enough, it will. That's one of the cool things about the, the dopamine system is that the resensitizing of your dopamine sensors, of your dopamine receptors, spe specifically around food, um, that when you are consistently hitting them with the foods that trigger high dopamine response, they defend themselves against this intense stimulus uh, so that you experience dopamine lifts in what would be considered a normal range. And after a certain point in time, you now require foods that have a huge amount of calories in order to feel pleasure in a normal range. And then when you go back to healthy foods, it feels like an unsuccessful thing to do. And you go, God, is this ever going to feel good? What we know is that it's about a four-month journey to completely resensitize your dopamine receptors. However, 80% of that journey takes place in the first two weeks. So if you can simply be willing to be comfortable being uncomfortable, make the healthy choice long enough, within about two weeks, you're gonna get 80% of your dopamine sensitivity back. That food is gonna look and feel a lot different in two weeks than it does today. And for me, I just, I got so fixated on wanting to complete that journey. I wanted to know what it was gonna feel like and I always tell people, don't, don't get into the sense that you're, you're, what you're trying to do is create a belief that one day you're going to wake up and there's going to be chocolate cake sitting there. There's going to be a bowl of oatmeal and that chocolate cake will not look attractive. That's never going to happen. That chocolate cake should look attractive. What you're looking for is an opportunity where that chocolate cake looks attractive and so does oatmeal. Not as attractive, but it still looks attractive. That's a good sense that your dopamine receptors are pretty darn sensitive 
that you most of the time eat a diet that is appropriate and representative of your natural history. So I wanted to get there. I wanted to do that by caring for myself. I had been spending my entire life up until that point believing that my body was my adversary. That every single day, my body was fighting a battle that I couldn't defend against. That it wanted to be overweight, it wanted to be in pain, that I was born with a poor genetic hand, and that what I needed to do was try to outcompete my body. I needed to restrict, I needed to overexert, I needed to punish. I practiced a lot of self-harm my last few years of, of substance use because I thought what I needed to do was defeat this enemy that I was living in. But I, can, I had an amazing conversation with my therapist when I was in recovery, and we talked about my suicide attempt. And I, we didn't actually talk about this one part that I'm bringing up, but it, it kind of came to me after the conversation. I was like, holy shit, wait a minute. I actively tried to end my life and my body didn't let me. What if my body is the greatest ally I've ever had in my entire life? What if my body has been fighting for me since the day I was born and trying every single day to keep me alive, even though I was doing things like junk food, I was doing things like drugs? What if my body has been caring for me my entire life and someone got me to believe differently? What if I, instead of trying to view my body as an adversary, I start occupying the role of a caretaker? There, I have a very dear friend, her name is Tara Kemp, and she talks about this a lot, occupying the caretaker role, where instead of trying to figure out how to get rid of what's wrong with you, what you're doing is spending every day caring for a body that is actively trying to keep you alive, that is your best friend, that is the, the thing that has allowed you to survive whatever hardship you've gone through and you never gave up. If I wanna be a caretaker, I don't wanna focus on what not to do. I wanna be incredibly focused on what I need to do in order to give my body what it wants to manifest health and, and wellness. And that looked like a plant-rich, fiber-rich diet. So every single day I would get up and I would organize my calories around oats and sweet potatoes and beans and rice, and that was pretty much it. I basically ate the same meals every single day for 10 months. But in the course of those 10 months, I had a, a pretty remarkable journey. Within four months, I completely reversed my diabetes, my heart disease, and my erectile dysfunction. Within 10 months, I lost over 100 pounds. And within a year, I had gotten off of every single medication I was prescribed in rehab. The antidepressants, the mood stabilizers, the sleeping medications, all of them. And nutrition had become this vehicle that allowed me to reconnect to a life that seemed for the first time in 20 plus years like it was a pretty darn safe secure, hopeful, and exciting place to wake up into. And also the sense that it seems like I may have figured out how to make my future look equally safe, maybe even more safe, maybe even more hopeful. Once that realization started to occur, all of a sudden I noticed I had a lot more ability to deal with distress. I had a greater opportunity to, uh, to regulate self-control and willpower because I was willing to make hard decisions even though it wasn't convenient sometimes, even though it wasn't comfortable, because I just wanted to know what tomorrow was going to feel like. How significant were relationships during that period? Oh my gosh. You know, you can't put a price on that. I mean, I had a, I had, I'd still do. My dad calls me five times a day. Ah. Uh, 
I, I never knew uh, what an ally I had in my dad. And um, I'm very regretful for the years that I won't get back that I spent hating him. Because holy shit did he show up for me. He never once made me feel like I was a burden. He never once told me or said, do you have any idea how much this is costing us? He never gave me a sense of like, you know, if you don't do this by X date, you know, what are we going to do? Um, he would call me and be a sense of, of calm energy. Um, when things were going well, he, he wanted to be a problem solver for me. Um, I had, uh, I have a, a mom, a mom who was very similar. She's a little bit more emotional. Um, I'll tell you what, when I tell the story the way that I did, it seems like I'm, I'm the one that did all the work. Um, but <clears throat> I was only able to do the work because if I ever felt like stopping, there was somebody in my life who said, do you need me to help you carry you through this next day? Do you want me to sit with you? Do you want me to, uh, do you want me to call someone for you? Um, I had a care team, uh, Phil Hamburger, who I talked about, um, who uh, every year on the, the day that I checked into treatment, I call him and thank him. Uh, because he never made me feel like I was doing it too slow or too fast. Um, I'm, I'm incredibly fortunate that I was surrounded by people who gave me permission to get it wrong and not feel like that was a failure, but to see that as an opportunity to figure out what's an accurate way to do it next time. That's really useful. Um, for me, I've, I've spent so much of my life feeling like a failure and to have people go, oh, no, 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 don't, don't worry. Just think of it as trial and learning not trial and error, that what you're wanting to do is every single day you get up, you're going to find out one of two things. You're going to find out that you, that this was an accurate way of doing things, or you're going to find out it was an inaccurate way of doing things, both of which are really important. And you should be excited to find out what's inaccurate, just as excited to find out what is accurate, because both of them lead you in a direction towards, you know, showing up better in your life. And, you know, I spent 10 months in recovery and, um, I checked into treatment, the most disconnected, most unhealthy uh, I'd ever been in my life. And I left the healthiest and most connected I'd ever felt in my life. And I, you know, I, I, I'm so desperately passionate about wanting to give that experience to other people. I wanted to know, did the way that I organized my calories play a role in it whatsoever? Um, and so I started to look into it and realize that there, no one had ever studied it. No one had ever investigated uh, how nutrition may increase treatment effects for individuals in recovery in a controlled trial or even in a controlled setting. And so I probably just spent like the better part of a year just being really angry that I couldn't validate my experience. I really, I, I, I felt like this, we talked about it earlier. Recovery in the early stages requires a sense of certainty. It requires a sense of closed mindedness. You have to be open-minded a lot of time. There's gotta be a sense of like, nope, this is going to work. This is going to work. And I kind of got that way with the low-fat plant-based diet thing. I kind of, this is it. This is the only way to do it. I want to dig into that. Yeah. The, the, the study, the infinite yeah. study. But I do have a question on that. Yeah. And when you look back at the nutritional changes, yeah. and it could be a, a, a combination of, but 
how much do you attribute to just the act mm. of doing something for yourself no, versus I'm, the food? I'm going to tell you, I'm going to give it 90%. That is the act itself. And here's why. There is a, um, uh, a theory called the ego trap. Um, this is something that Doug Lyle also talks about. What, what he's talking about is when you look outside your window, if you're a person who struggles with substance use disorder and you look outside your window, like if we were to look out here right now, would look like no one else really struggles with that problem whatsoever, right? Most people that I know in my life didn't, didn't seem like they were actively struggling with it. So for me, if all I did was stop using, I would be doing what everyone else does with zero effort. So from my self-esteem, that's not worthy of applause. And when we think about self-esteem, we should think of it as an internal audience. It's an internal audience that's responding to you as if it were the world that you know watching you do what you do. Well, the world that I knew was a bunch of people who I didn't, didn't seem to struggle with substance use disorder. My parents sure didn't. My friends didn't. Right? The people that I used to work with didn't. I did. So if all I did was stop using, well, then I'd just do what everyone else does with zero effort. Only for me, it would take an incredible amount of effort. That, that, that doesn't feel good. What if instead of stopping, you, instead of just trying to stop using, you actively replace it with an act of self-care that might seem like a sacrifice no matter who you are? If we were to look out in our lives, for the majority of us, we know that most people seem to struggle with health. Most people find it hard to exercise regularly and eat healthily. And if you were to ask them if they're willing to do that and what that might feel like, they'd say, oh, that's an extraordinary effort. That's kind of a sacrifice. I like doing this. I like doing that. If you were to actively replace substance use with acts of self-care that people in your life might see as a sacrifice to them, all of a sudden your efforts are now worthy of applause, not just to the people, but to the internal audience in you that raises your self-esteem. What's the trick to get people to see that and to be receptive to that idea? That's a tough one. I think number one, it comes back to the idea that recovery should, shouldn't be about trying to not use. It should be about actively replacing use with things you can organize your life around that create change over time. Now, what's important is if that change that you institute into your life that you replace the use with is something that will better your life over time and is something that maybe you've tried before and just couldn't seem to figure out or people in your life, you know, they've tried it and they couldn't seem to figure it out. If we can deliver that change to you with ease and repeatability give you a sense that you figured that thing out for the first time, you figured out how to implement it into your life, how to organize your life around it, how to make it a part of the foundation for how you do things, you're going to get a lift in your self-esteem because what that means is you're going to have a sense that you may have figured something out that's valuable to other people. You may have figured out how to eat healthy. And if anyone ever needs to figure out how to do what you do, you can share it with them. Uh, the person I talked about earlier, Johan Hari, he has a phenomenal quote. He says that loneliness isn't the physical absence of people. It's the sense that you have nothing of value to share with anyone. If we can replace your use with valuable knowledge that's not only valuable to you, but you have a sense might be valuable to people that you care about, you're going to have an unbelievable lift in your self-esteem and your resilience. That's incredibly important. That's what recovery should look like. It should be about helping this person 
redesign their life with useful and valuable self-care acts that are not only valuable to them, but could be valuable to other people that they care about if they needed it. You have a sense of value within a community of shared respect. Increasing self-worth. Increasing self-worth. That loneliness bit reminds me the National Institute of Health last year, and this was kind of off the back of COVID. There was a lot of isolation. Oh, yeah. Of course. And they released this statistic that stuck in my mind. And when it came to health and longevity, being socially isolated was equivalent to smoking 15 cigarettes a day. No, uh, there's a phenomenal... um, And now, again, this is correlative, but I think it's really important. In the 1980s, during the AIDS epidemic in San Francisco, um, people were dying. The homosexual community was being ravaged by AIDS. And I I, I don't want to give a sense that I have any understanding of how that feels, but this is really important. When you look at the data of homosexual individuals being treated for AIDS in the 1980s, and you look at the life expectancy of individuals who are openly gay versus people who are closeted homosexuals. Closeted homosexuals died two years earlier than openly homosexual people. And what this seems to say is that shame killed that person faster. They felt alone. They didn't feel like they had a right to be who they were. They didn't feel like being who they were was a safe thing to share with people that they cared about. And as a result of that feeling, their treatment was less effective. Their life was less valuable to them in sense of like how the world viewed them. Um, and now again, I, this is, you know, it's correlative, but it's valuable. It's interesting to look at. And then when you look at uh, the impact that we know that loneliness has on people, that isolation has on people, when you look at what happens when a married couple who are in their senior years, the life expectancy, once one of the partners dies, the other person who's left alive, their life expectancy plummets. So it sounds like I get the feeling you're incredibly grateful for the role of recovery and rehabilitation yes. in your life. But given the statistics that I read out before, there's still a lot of people slipping through the cracks in the existing system. So my there's question so much more, yeah. My question is, and that's not to dismiss all of the incredible work that's being done in no, recovery no, no. and rehabilitation because maybe that 700,000, in fact, it would be, it would be much higher if the existing system and, and great work that people are doing was not in place. But coming back to your sort of emphasis on instilling self-worth and how can you address these signals that people are receiving that is telling them they're unsafe? What what would need to happen or could be added to the existing system or modified that you think would help more people? Well, number one, we have to have a very different conversation about what drug use actually is. We need to have a very different conversation about what addiction is. And we have to have very different policies around what, you know, what drugs mean to a society. Uh, I think every drug should be legalized, uh, certainly decriminalized. I really do. People don't die from using drugs. They die because using drugs is dangerous and using drugs is dangerous. The reason why using drugs is dangerous is because drugs are controlled by criminals right now. Can you explain the difference to someone if they are new to this territory between legalized and decriminalized? Yeah. So legalized means, you know, openly being sold anywhere on a corner shop, just going and buy something. Decriminalized means 
you're not sent to jail for using. Decriminalized looks like institutions that can be set up for safe use for people who are struggling, where they don't have to go shoot up heroin in an alley, pulling gutter water into a syringe. Um, in fact, there are countries in Europe that have done this, uh, and unfortunately, I can't remember the exact country that did this, but there was a, obviously there's the Portugal experiment, which was phenomenal. They decriminalized every substance from cannabis to crack. Um, overdoses were down over 50%. HIV and hepatitis is down over 50%. Um, it, they haven't gone back because it's so successful. I think in Netherlands as well, they do yeah. some, at least they allow people to test their drugs. That's really important. There was, there was a European country that came out with a, a, a heroin problem. About 1% of their population was addicted to heroin. That's a real problem. And the prime minister of health said, what I want to do is I want to decriminalize heroin use for heroin addicts. And the response to this was, oh, you can't do that. That's chaos. We'll have people dying all over the street. And the Prime Minister of Health, in a very rational way, said, no, I'm sorry. Chaos is unknown people using unknown substances of unknown potency from unknown origins delivered by unknown criminal elements. What I want to do is I want to make it so that I know who's using, where they're using, exactly what they're using, that they're safe, and that they're cared for. The number of overdoses since this change was put into place is zero. Because people, this is really important. When you use substances like heroin, the reason why, the number one reason why it's dangerous is you don't really know what you're using. Fentanyl. Fentanyl is a huge problem. And in fact, if it's illegal, if it's dangerous to even get it, if getting it means you have to interact with people who are dangerous in order to get it, and you only have so much money to afford it, well, you're going to want to get the biggest bang for your buck because you don't know when your next hit's going to come. And so, in fact, you're trying to buy the most dangerous, most potent stuff. We saw this happen during the prohibition in the United States. People were dying of alcohol poisoning all the time. The reason for this was they only had $5 to spend on alcohol. Alcohol is illegal. It's a dangerous thing to do to actively go out and try to sneak into a speakeasy and get it and not get arrested. Well, if, I've only got, if I can only get one drink, it better be the strongest drink I can get. And so people got really sick. There was a lot of harm that was caused. The minute prohibition ended, we had regulated sales of alcohol. People knew exactly how strong it was. They knew that they could get as much as they want, and they could even come back tomorrow. So they weren't always trying to... I mean, you don't go out and drink every shot of Everclear, do you? No, of course not. That would be ridiculous. Anyone who goes out to drink, they're, they're, most people are going out and they're, they're drinking something that they know exactly how strong it is, and the bartenders are caring for people. They cut them off when they think that they've had enough. So, of course, alcohol poisoning has plummeted. Crime connected to alcohol is erased. It became a much safer thing to do. I'm not saying alcohol is a good thing that people should just go out and drink whenever they want, but the environment in which alcohol existed became safe. It became regulated. and People became cared for. We need to do the same thing with all substances. The reason why it's so dangerous to use drugs is because drugs are controlled by criminals. The reason why they're criminals is because they've criminalized the substance. But when you criminalize the substance, you only criminalize the user, not the substance itself. Heroin isn't being arrested. The person who used it is being arrested. And in fact, the war on drugs is such an utter failure that they can't even keep the drugs out of prison. It's, it's such an utter failure. It is literally the worst system they could have designed to help people. They've designed a system that says, if you're in trouble, if you can't stop using, don't worry, we'll arrest you for it. How terrifying is that? What, for that person who doesn't have family support, how safe would that person feel to say, 
I'm struggling with heroin use. I need help. If the fear is you could get arrested, you could be cut off from society. Someone might not want to associate with you because to them, you're a criminal. You're a junkie. No, you're a human in pain. That's what you are. That saying, once an addict, always an addict. I really wish we could get rid of that statement. So that's one of the main things you think we need to do. Yeah. Redefine what it means to be an addict. Absolutely. And how we view those people. Right now, we have a dependency model for addiction. What I mean is, if you were to check into treatment right day, today and say, yeah, I'm here because I struggle with heroin. What they'll say is, you have a heroin problem. And I can prove it to you. Watch what happens when I take your heroin away. You go into these painful withdrawals, and that is proof that you're an addict. No, that is proof that you've, you've used long enough so that there's a biological adaptation that's occurred that creates withdrawal symptoms when you take it away. That's dependency. That is not the same thing. In fact, you don't even have to be an addict to experience biological dependency. This happens a lot with a lot of things. Dependency is a biological adaptation to prolong use to a substance or behavior. Addiction is a psychological and emotional adaptation to a substance or behavior that you believe, you think, and you feel is caring for something difficult in your life or making your life, which feels unsafe, feel just a little bit safer, a little bit easier to go through. Uh, Russell Brand has a quote. He says, the priority of every addict is to ease the passage of time through some sort of purchased relief. That's a beautiful statement. That really talks about what's going on, to ease the passage of time through some sort of purchased relief. It doesn't talk about chemical hooks. doesn't it talk about dependency. It talks about the priority of this person is so great, their life is so difficult, that all they can think about is just easing today. Just let me get through this. This works. Just let me have more of it. Why it makes sense that that person is feeling like that is the answer to recovery. How do we get this person to finally be able to define for us, why can't you deal with life as it is without substance? Why does for you using look just like self-care? Why does it feel just like self-care? And if we could reorganize your life so that your life can be lived in a healthy and safe way while also feeling like you're caring for yourself, would you do it? I think that's a much better conversation. It, it, it gives people a sense that they're not crazy. It's not pathology. It's not an indication of biology gone wrong. It's actually an indication of your psychology and biology doing the appropriate response to a life that doesn't feel safe. These aren't bad people. They're not criminals. Addicts are not criminals. They're humans in pain. Depressed people are not sick. They're humans in pain. And suicidal people are not crazy. They're humans in pain, and maybe if we could stop trying to define people by what they struggle with, it would be easier for us to listen to their needs, and we would see that their needs make complete sense. That's the conversation we need to be having around recovery. We need to stop saying, how do we get you to stop? We need to say, why does your use make sense? Where is the pain coming yeah. from? Where's the pain coming from? Exactly. And so one of the things I wanted to do is I wanted to study what does... How can we help individuals organize calories in such a way that creates a sense of safety and security over time that could increase treatment effects over time? And that's where we ended up running the infinite study, which was the first controlled trial investigating the effects of nutrition on early addiction recovery outcomes in a treatment center setting. We looked at two primary outcomes, which, which for me are the most important, which are self-esteem and resilience. If you were to take two variables 
as a predictor for long-term recovery, I would pick self-esteem and resilience over anything else, over environment or anything else. I would pick self-esteem and resilience. What we discovered was that by intentionally reorganizing calories around fiber and plants, which are one and the same, but fiber content and plant content, we saw an increased, a statistically significant increase in self-esteem and resilience at 10 weeks. That's useful. Now, as a small study, it's a pilot study, so it's not, you know, I'm not saying like, oh, we figured it out. But that's really important because number one, there's never been a dietary study investigating what happens when we look at nutrition. And number two, there's always been a sense that a plant-based diet, a plant-exclusive diet would be a hindrance to recovery. And what I love about the study was there wasn't a single variable that we investigated. And we investigated a lot. We did microbiome. We did full lipid panels. We did omega-3 levels. We did vitamin levels. We did full psychological panels. So depression, anxiety, obsessive compulsive drug use, mania, self-esteem, spirituality, uh, resilience, everything. Not a single variable that the plant-based diet was outperformed by the, uh, the, uh, the control diet. And the control diet was a pretty decent diet. It actually was. It was a very low in processed foods. It was actually quite high in plant content. Um, it just, it, it, it contained meat, eggs, and or dairy at almost every meal. Um, and also what's important, and this is really important, uh, it wasn't just a dietary intervention. It was also diet, nutrition education as well. So we paired nutrition education to match the dietary pattern of each group. So the control group was like an elevated Western diet. Someone might, might even want to classify it as like kind of a paleo style diet. And the other one was a plant exclusive whole food diet, whole food, plant-based diet, plant exclusive. And we matched nutrition education for each group. I, I think it's really important that people gain a self-efficacy a sense that they understand the value that they're offering themselves. So the, the nutrition education for the other group was all positive. Saying, what, what are the benefits of eating meat, eggs, and dairy in your diet? And ours was, what's the benefits of eating plants, having a plant-exclusive diet? I didn't want to demonize food, and I don't agree with demonizing any food. I wanted people to feel a sense that the choices they were making were valuable, whether they wanted to do something different or not. And what we saw was that the only group that showed statistically significant increases was the plant-based group. Not that the other group didn't, didn't do well. In fact, every group did well across the board, which shows us two things. Number one, the diet that this treatment center, Infinite Recovery, builds as their base diet in uh, Austin, Texas, is very good. And the program itself is very good because we saw benefit across the board. We just saw in these other variables, the plant-based group did a little bit better. Is it something, do you think that pilot study will inspire more research is, is this team looking at doing more research off the back of that yeah right now we're trying to finish the other three manuscripts that come out of this study so we're we're writing a uh, a qualitative uh uh manuscript because we did um we did qualitative interviews with participants uh when they exited and then six months after um so we're writing a manuscript around the qualitative stories which is some of them i mean like i'm a uh, human beings are creatures of, of story, right? We exist in them. And so I think it's so important to pair quantitative data with qualitative stories. We have people who are saying, you know, this wasn't my first, second, or even third time in recovery, and I don't know why, but this time felt different. That's really important. That's really useful. We had people saying, you know, I didn't really think I, I did it because, look, to be honest, I did it because they were compensating me uh, $50 a, a week. 
to do this study and that we did we 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 gave people a $50 gift card every single week to Whole Foods Market to support their nutrition as they continue the recovery it wasn't in cash in both groups both groups yeah and did it just for that but like I was not expecting to be so connected to this plant-based diet I felt like for the first time I had a sense of connection to the to the world around me that I was being of betterment to the environment that I had an agency of change, not only for myself, but for the environment that I found myself in. I felt like for the first time I was meaningful to the world. That's so incredible. It speaks to a spiritual connection. Um, and so we're, we're going to continue to investigate that. We're going to write a few more manuscripts. We have a microbiome manuscript to, to write and, you know, we'll see what, we'll see what happens. Yeah. I think, uh, yeah. Dr. Will Bolsowitz will be interested yeah. in, yeah. That, in that manuscript. Yeah, he will. You mentioned, August 21st earlier yeah. and something I, I wanted to ask you about was in Buddhist tradition there's this um, thought that sort of contemplating your mortality um, that life is you know the impermanence of, of life yeah. can be helpful to bring someone back to the present and yeah. to help someone see the beautiful things that are right in front of their eyes in their life that you could take for granted. Yeah. Is that date too painful for you to go back to, or do you often go back there? You know, it's so funny. Uh, like the first six years after my recovery, August 21st was a difficult day. Um, because I thought what it was, was the day that I, I wanted my life. I didn't want to live anymore where my pain had become too much. But, you know, one of the things I got into in recovery was there was a Buddhist-based uh, recovery system. I didn't really resonate with AA, um, but I started to uh, explore, there's a group called Dharma Punks, uh, which is based on Buddhist teachings, meditation for recovery, an introspective look. And I started running regularly as a form of meditation because I'm... I, I, I don't do well sitting still. I don't know how we're doing this. Um, but uh, after about like six or seven years, I remember approaching August 21st to, and, and I got out and I was like, wow, this feels different. What August 21st means to me now, it's not the day that my life felt like I didn't want it to, to be a part of life anymore. It was the day I remembered how much I wanted to live. Rock bottom is one of the most beautiful places I've ever been. It's the place where you are presented front and center with how precious every moment of your life actually is. And that if you're not willing to go in a different direction, it can be taken from you tomorrow. There's an immediacy of it. And being pushed up against that line where you see, if I just go one more step, I don't get any more of this. That is a place that if you get there, and I hope you don't, but if you do, your life will never be the same. Um, I take, I try to take very little for granted. I try to live very, very simply. I, I became a minimalist. Um, and in fact, after my first year of recovery, I went and lived in an orphanage in Nepal for a while because I just, I, I didn't know what I wanted to do. And I, I just wanted to be of service completely and, and, and try to find out what brought me joy. And you know, I, I lived with these kids who had, they'll never have anything. They will never know 
any kind of sense of, of abundance like we do. But holy shit, I never saw people smile more. I have never seen true joy up until that point, the way that I saw it every day in the faces of those kids when I would show up just to do homework with them or play soccer with them. And they know what their life looks like. They know their trajectory of it. And these kids are the happiest kids I've ever been around. And it reorganized my priorities. It really helped me see that like, oh my gosh, that I want to feel like that. I want to feel that like when that person that matters the most to me walks in the room, I have everything I'll ever need. That when I get to do the things with my body, go for a run or go to the gym, that I feel like I've got everything I'll ever need. That when I get to be of pur- uh, you know, commit to a purpose, to a mission, when I get to be of service to somebody and really connected with my, you know, what I want to do, that I have everything I'll ever need. And if things come into my life in, in terms of like financial abundance, great. But that's not what I'm seeking. I need it, of course. People need, you know, to pay their bills. But really what I need is to be connected to the loving and meaningful bonds in our lives that give us the sense of feeling alive. And those loving and meaningful bonds are these. A loving and meaningful bond with yourself, both physically and emotionally, that you want to show up and be present for every single day. A loving and meaningful bond with people in your life that you want to show up and be present for every single day. A loving and meaningful bond with a purpose that you want to share within a community of shared respect that you want to show up and be present for every single day. And a loving and meaningful bond with a future that feels safe, secure, and hopeful that you want to show up and work for every single day. When those bonds are fully connected, when those are actively parts of your life, Life itself is an exciting place to wake up and be present for. In that person's life, substance use is a lot less necessary. That person has a very slim chance of ever having substance use become a disorder. That person may use substances. It'll likely be convivial. It'll likely be explorative. But it's never going to be a sense of, I don't want to be here. And... um, I think that that's really what I've been able to, when I talk about an authentic self, it's rediscovering those, those loving and meaningful bonds. Beautifully put. What a, a monologue. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, you're a gift. We're all really, really, you know, lucky to have you. So thank it. you for continuing to share and be so courageous with your story. I know that it will inspire many. And, you know, my pleasure. I just want people to know, Number one, if you know someone who's struggling, if you know someone who's dealing with substance use or mental illness, number, know this, for people who are struggling with substance use disorder, they just want to be something other than what they are, which is in pain. And people who are in pain will do almost anything to be other than what they are, which is in pain. That is the priority, as Russell Brand says. The priority of any addict is just to ease the passage of time through some kind of purchased relief. That person's use is not a problem. Their, their, their use makes sense. The problems exist before the substance use. If you have someone who's struggling, if you know someone, Johan Hari said it best. He said, I want you to call that person. I want you to tell them, I love you whether you're using or you're not. I love you whatever state you're in. And if you need me, I may not have the answers, but I will sit with you because I don't want you to feel alone or be alone. 
that is one of the most caring and loving things you can do for someone to sit with someone and listen to them and listen to how they feel. Listening, listening is an act very close to loving. In fact, I think listening looks so much like loving that most people can't tell the difference. Amen. Thank you, brother. Yeah, my pleasure. There you have it, friends. I hope you enjoyed this episode. If you did and want to stay up to date with future episodes, be sure to hit that subscribe button on YouTube and follow on Apple or Spotify. Finally, thank you for showing up and the effort that you're making to take control of your health. I look forward to hanging out with you again in the next episode.